Friends, would you open with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 22. 1 Samuel 22, um, between the services and the coffee hour, I was talking to somebody and they were talking about the service and how much they appreciated it. And they were saying to me, there's one part of the service that's my absolute favorite part. Now take a step back. Um, I'm the preacher that he's talking to. I invest a ton of time in studying and preparing and getting ready to preach God's word. I'm going to have your attention that I'm going to fight for for the next 25 minutes as I expound God's word. I have an opinion on what his favorite part should be. And he tells me my favorite part is when the preacher gets up. Yeah, go on. And reads the entire story, and I just get to hear what God is saying to me. Isn't that incredible? Doesn't that just immediately put me in my place to say, this is the main event as far as God's word is concerned, to open our Bibles and to read it. The word of God is what we're going to hear God's words to us. Grass uh, withers and flowers fade. Preachers, they're going to come and go, but the word of God is going to stand forever. So I'm going to take my time to read the entirety of 1 Samuel 22. Here now, God's word. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who is in distress and everyone who is in debt and everyone who is bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became captain over them. And there with him about 400 men. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold, depart, and go on into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. Now Saul heard that David was discovered, and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then answered Doeg the Edomite who stood with the servants of Saul. I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob to Ahimelech the son of Ahitub and he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Hear now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day? Then Ahimelech answered the king and said, Who among all your servants is so faithful as David? Who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No, let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all of this, much or little. And the king said to him, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. 
And the king said to the guard who stood about him, turn and kill the priests of the Lord because their hand also is with David and they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, you turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword, both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey and sheep, he put them to the sword. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safekeeping. Let's pray together. Father, as we now spend this time to huddle around 1 Samuel 22 and study your word as our kids downstairs also huddle around your word to hear from you. I pray that you would make us a people who do not live by bread alone, but by every single word that proceeds from your mouth. Let us hear it, let us obey it, let us apply it, let us live it, and we will by the power of your Holy Spirit. So we ask boldly in Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, many of you have now, by now in your life, had the opportunity to work at a number of different places. You've held a number of different jobs, and it's interesting. You can kind of discern from being in a place and working at a place for a while, what is the environment of that community? What kinds of people am I working with, and, and what kind of community do, do they portray? We're not talking about when you go into an office, how the furniture is arranged and what kind of coffee is served in the break room. There's something else. There's, there's a personality of a place that we're, we're trying to put our finger on. When I come here to work, is this a compelling place to be? Is this exciting? Is this place, are these people the kind of people that I can take risks with and fail and it will be a safe place to fail? We're, when we say those things, we're trying to, to put our finger on the nature of the community that we're working with. We're going to get an opportunity to weigh communities today when we study our passage. Because ever since chapter 16 and all the way up to this point, we have seen a contrast build, but it's been a a contrast of two individuals. We've seen David versus Saul, and we've weighed these two men and how they think about their relationship with God. You've got David, who is a man who is full of flaws, but his heart is soft towards God. And you have Saul, who is a man who is full of flaws, but his heart is hard towards God. But now for the first time, since they've separated and people have started to gather around David as they've already done around Saul, we get an opportunity to compare the two communities that are in front of us. What is the nature of this new community around David and how does that contrast with Saul? Well, you could get to that answer by simply studying this passage and writing down everything that's true of David's community and everything that's true of Saul's community, and you would have a contrast between the two. But I think this chapter gives us a little more imaginative space because it introduces to us three people with three distinct offices that all become centered in the person of Jesus. You have a prophet and a priest 
and a king. You have a prophet. He's introduced to us at the very beginning, the prophet Gad. You have a priest who comes to us at the very end of the passage, Abiathar. And you have a king. You have Saul, but you also have a king in waiting, David. Now, Jesus holds these same offices. Everything that's explored in those offices in the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus in the New. Jesus is the fulfillment of our prophet, priest, and king. He is the prophet. Jesus speaks the very words of God. He's the priest because he alone is the mediator between God and men. And he's a king because he has already ascended and assumed his kingship, but he will reign even further when we come to the new heavens and the new earth. So it shouldn't surprise us that any community that wants to get around Jesus, any group that wants to serve him as this church does, is going to enjoy the benefits of and is going to reflect the nature of Jesus as prophet and as priest and as king. That is happening in David's community right now. As these people gather, they're in some sense becoming a people about the prophet and the priest and the king. Now, that's a very dense series of theological thoughts that would be hard to take the time to expound all of them. All we're going to do this morning is highlight the first two, the prophet and the priest, and understand that they're here in this passage to study further, and then we're going to spend the rest of our time on point three. Let's understand each of these offices as they appear in the community. Number one, the prophet. As people of the prophet, the community hears and obeys God's word. As people who are surrounded around this new king, people of the prophet, this community hears and obeys God's word. The moment people begin to hear that David is in this cave in Adullam and they gather around him, a prophet appears in verse 5, prophet Gad, and he shows up and he speaks God's word. And what happens next is so very simple, but it sets David and his community off in a brand new trajectory that we have not seen for the 30 plus odd years that Saul has been king already by this point. The prophet Gad, he speaks God's word. David and his community, they listen and they obey. Isn't that so simple and yet so radical? Saul himself, by the time David's in Adullam, he's up in Gibeah. They're only a couple of miles away. But Saul has grown so disinterested in the word of God that the prophet Gad does not find it reasonable for him to walk a couple of miles to also speak the word to Saul. He doesn't hear it because Saul has so long rejected the word of God. There are no more prophets who are begging for his attention. Saul's not interested. The import for that today is as chilling as it is for Saul. You know, it's possible for us, even as believers, who have the Holy Spirit within us, who speaks the word of God to us and reminds us what is true and good and pure, there is a way to say no to the Holy Spirit so many times that when we reach for a vice or an addiction or a sin or, or a selfishness that we have defined ourselves by, where we used to hear the Holy Spirit speaking to us and pleading with us, we don't hear anything. That's a very scary place in the life of a believer. It's a very scary place now in the life of Saul. He has, in essence, become his own false prophet. What Saul says goes, he is listening to his own words, and his world continues to bend inward on itself. This is not 
happening with David right now and the community that's surrounding him. They hear the prophetic word and they obey. I imagine this had a big impact on David's community. I imagine that when he's there in the cave, when people are surrounding him, they're pledging their allegiance to David. They're telling David, we're going to to serve you as our leader. He becomes the captain over them and they intend to follow him where he goes. And one of David's first acts as a new captain with a new group of people is to listen to a prophet who is telling him, God says, leave the stronghold and go into a more vulnerable place, this forest that's in Judah, and I want you to leave. David hears that and he obeys that. If you're a community just gathering around him, that's going to have a big impact on you to say, if I want to be a part of this thing, I'm going to be a part of a people who listens to what God says and does it. Number two, these are people of the priest. As people of the priest, the community asks and trusts. As people of the priest, this community, they ask and they trust. There are so many things that a priest does that we understand in the Old Testament that is fulfilled in Jesus in the New Testament. But the thing that chapter 22 and also 23 puts their finger on, the role of the priest that we're exploring now, is one who inquires of God. A priest is a person who mediates and who inquires and hears what God would have the people do. That's the role of the priest here. There's this growing theme in Saul's life that he is always a day late and a dollar short. I mean, Saul, he doesn't ever know what's going on. Here he is, it's this goofy scene at the tamarisk tree. He doesn't know who to trust. He doesn't know where David is. He doesn't know anything because he is not inquiring of God. He's not asking and listening and trusting to what God will say. Just as Saul has become his own prophet, he is fulfilling his own role as the priest. Remember his first grave sin in chapter 13 where Samuel says, I'll come at a certain time and I will make a sacrifice before you go into battle. And Saul waits and he doesn't see Samuel and he gets nervous. And what does he do? He takes on the mantle of the priesthood and he does what he ought never do. He makes the sacrifice himself. Saul has become his own prophet and he has become his own priest. He does not inquire of the Lord because he has taken on that role himself. That's not what's happening in David's community. This is not going to be a a perfect community. They're not always going to do this, but at least in this chapter and specifically in the next chapter, David's community will stop what they're doing and they will pray. They will ask God to lead them in the next steps that they should take because they are a people that is surrounding the priest. These two points, I mean, they have huge import for us as the church today. We think about any community that's surrounding Jesus in these two roles as prophet and priest, and we can immediately imagine that we ought also to be people of the prophet and people of the priest, people who listen and obey, people who ask and who trust. That should be true of us. Jesus really underscores that point in Matthew chapter 4. That, of course, is the scene where Jesus is in the wilderness. He's fasted for 40 days, and the devil comes to test him. And when he does, he asks Jesus to do all manner of bizarre things. I want you to take stones, and I want you to make them into bread. I want you to get up on a pinnacle, and I want you to jump off, and let's see if angels will catch you before you hit the ground. The devil has all these kinds of ideas to press Jesus with, and you get the impression that if the devil had his druthers in Matthew chapter 4, we would all be chasing a kind of carnival Christianity. 
turning stones into bread, jumping off of pinnacles. We get that sense, especially if we've been in the church for a while, that we're bored with the plain vanilla stuff we've been served, and we want something else. We want something different. We want something more. We want new experiences. We want better spiritual gifts. We want keener insights beyond what is written. We can end up, the longer we're in the church, to measure faith by the fantastic. What's happening? What's new? What's special? I think one of the roles as a member of a church is to pull fellow parishioners off the pinnacle. You do not have to jump off of this thing to experience Christianity. What if we took what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 4 seriously, and instead of trying to live on bread alone, we sought as a whole community to live on every single word that proceeds from the mouth of God? That would be a radical community. A community here now surrounding this kind of king who understands Jesus as prophet and priest. A community who is going to take very seriously reading and studying and applying our Bibles and going to God in prayer. A community that reads, a community that prays. That, that's what a community around a prophet and a priest is going to look like. Let's talk about a king. This is where we're going to spend most of our time, Jesus as king. As people of the king, the community, they welcome and they serve. As people of the king, the community welcomes and serves. Now, Jesus is king. He makes that abundantly clear. Scripture makes that abundantly clear. There are many scenes that we see it in his life and many ways in which he's described as king after the gospels. One of those powerful scenes within his life is when Jesus is being interrogated by Pilate. Before he is crucified, Pilate is trying to get a sense of who Jesus is, and he asks him very plainly, Jesus, are you king of the Jews? And Jesus answers him, you have said so. Now, Pilate, he was already unsettled by Jesus. He didn't know what to think about him. He didn't know what to do. His wife was losing sleep over Jesus being on trial. I guarantee you that Pilate remembered those words until the day he died. Jesus, are you king? You have said so. Now what Jesus achieves in subtlety in the Gospels, he blows up in clarity in places like Revelation 19 when we learn that when Jesus returns on the last day, he will come riding a white horse with his army in tow and he will have a robe on which is written and on his thigh, King of kings and Lord of lords. Make no mistake, any community worth its salt, any community that seeks to put Jesus at the center will celebrate and worship a Jesus who is King of kings and Lord of lords and will get on our faces and will worship him forever. That's who Jesus is. The second we get that understanding, we see that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords, we know that we bow down and we worship him alone Jesus begins to take that idea of kingship and turn it on its head. Once you know that I'm king, I want you to understand how I'm king, and he reorients our entire minds about what a king is. He does that for all of us, but it's worth retelling a story in the Gospels where he does that for James and John's mother, because this is very instructive for us. We know that James and John, they're disciples of Jesus, they're brothers, and um, they are dubbed, their nickname is the Sons of Thunder. We can only imagine that they're called that because they were these bright, passionate, powerful personalities, and so that's what people called them. 
If that's what they called the sons, you can only imagine what the mother is like if she is the mother of the sons of thunder. You imagine that she also brings to the table some of that passion and personality. There was a video that was being passed around before the college championship game. I say it was being passed around. I mean I was texting it to a bunch of people. But, but it's basically this mother, she's an Alabama fan, and she's uh, in the stadium, and there's some college students that are Oklahoma Sooner fans, and they get in a tiff. She's a mom of a 16-year-old boy, so she's not a spring chicken, but she's up in these guys' faces, and she's screaming at them until her husband drags her across the aisle and says, you know, please don't embarrass me. The moment the husband turns his head, you see her run across the aisle, jump over an entire row of students, and land flat into this crowd of college students just punching and kicking. I mean, she goes nuts. It's incredible. Um, That's how I picture James and John's mother. That's what I picture her being like the mother of the sons of thunder. The moment she understands that Jesus is not just a teacher who has taken on her boys to teach them new things, but he might just be a king who is about to inherit a kingdom, well, that's all she needs to know. She probably grabs these two boys and she marches right up to Jesus and she says, I've got one question for you. When you come into your kingdom, I just have a simple request. Put my boys at your right and at your left hand. Give them the places of prominence in the new heavens and the new earth. Forget about Abraham, forget about Enoch, forget about Elijah, James and John. I want them to be on your right and on your left. Now I can totally picture my mother doing something like that to me in front of Jesus. In fact, she might still do that in the new heavens and the new earth. But, but she's itching to get these people in a position of authority. And this is how Jesus responds. He says in Matthew 20, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man came not to to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Once we understand Jesus as king, he begins to reinterpret everything we understand in his kingship to say, if you are centering yourself around me, my ministry as king is going to be weighed by who I welcome and who I serve. A community that surrounds that kind of Jesus is going to go and do likewise. We're going to be a people that is weighed by who we serve and who we welcome. Look at verse 2. This is the same thing that's happening in David's community. He leaves Gath. He makes it halfway between Gath and his home city of Bethlehem. He can't get there because Saul is too close. And so he lands in this cave in Adullam and people start to join him in droves. I mean, hundreds of people come out, 400 men, plus their families and their kids as well. They join him. And this is the description in verse 2. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. Wow, that sounds like you guys. That sounds like Columbia Presbyterian Church. I mean, this is not a flattering description of these people. The group that's coming around, David, these are not the well-heeled Benjaminites who have suckled on the patron politics of Saul. He's king, and he's a Benjaminite, and he's over by the tamarisk tree telling fellow Benjaminites, hey, when you served me, you got lands and vineyards, you became commanders, you are now the haves. He's standing around the tamarisk tree with the haves, 
David is off in a cave with the have-nots. People who are coming around David, they are the weary and the heavy laden. They are people who are in need of rest. These people are mistreated. They've been deprived. They've been disenfranchised. They long for a world that's different than the one they have. And they begin to emerge when they hear about David, much like Jesus tells us in the parable of the banquet feast in Luke 18 from the streets and the lanes, from the highways and the hedges. This is a new community in training who are gathering around David, a king in waiting. The caliber of a Christian community, at least according to 1 Samuel 22, is measured by who it welcomes and how it serves. That's how you measure the caliber of a Christian community. Think about who is being welcomed and who ought to be welcomed into this kind of community that worships this kind of king. I mean, you can immediately think about a million scenes in the kinds of people that Jesus invites to himself, the kind of people that are welcome before Jesus and welcome into his new family. And all of a sudden, Jesus looks actually very similar to David. He's in the countryside, he's outside the centers of power, and he's gathering around himself this ragtag group of nobodies to form a new community and a new family. You get the impression when you read the Gospels that they are not trying to rush us as fast as they can to Golgotha to tell us that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. They slow down to tell us the kinds of people that Jesus is going to die on the cross for our sins. Jesus, when he welcomes, he welcomes men and he welcomes women. He welcomes children and infants. He welcomes the sick and the blind and the paralytic and the lame. He touches someone who is leprous and he is touched by a prostitute. He stops for a blind beggar. He goes to a party with tax collectors. He has dinner with the wildly rich Zacchaeus. You read story after story after story and you begin to see that there is only one stipulation for the kind of person that Jesus will welcome into his community and that is this he says I have came to call the sick and not the healthy in other words if you understand that you are sick that you are a sinner that you are broken and in need of a savior and healing then you are welcome into the community of Jesus that's his stipulation that's who he welcomes into his midst If we are the church that orders ourselves around this kind of king, how can we not also do likewise? How can we not also as the church be a refuge for the sick and for the sinner? Now, this is extremely important to hear. This church, when we talk about Columbia Presbyterian Church, our welcome will not be weighed by who is allowed to attend the new members class and find themselves on the church rolls. We're starting a new members class tonight. It's going to run for the next three weeks. I almost wish that's how we could weigh our welcome because it's an easy thing to spend three weeks with a person and put them on a membership rolls and consider that they belong to this community, but we're not going to get off that easy. The caliber of this community, the weight of who we welcome will not be measured by our membership roles. It will be measured literally by who you get up and talk to after this service. It will be measured by the kinds of people that you and I invite around our dinner table. 
It will be measured. The welcome of this community will be measured by who we make ourselves a neighbor to and who we serve. That and that alone is the measure of the welcome of this church community. That brings us to our second application of Jesus as king, a community in training us around a king in waiting who is Jesus will serve. Not just will welcome any kind of people, all stripes and manners of people from any kind of background, but we will also be a church that turns and serves those very same people. We serve each other. I don't know if you guys have read Alfred Lansing's book, Endurance. If you haven't, you need to leave the service early, get to the library, and get that book. Forget what I said about welcome. Get the book. Um, But it's this wild story of Sir Ernest Shackleton. He brings 27 men with him, and they sail south because they want to be the first expedition to walk across Antarctica. That's what they want to do. And as they get down around that region, their ship becomes trapped. It becomes trapped in um, floating slabs of ice called ice flows. It catches the ship and it freezes it in place. And very soon afterwards, it actually crushes the ship. So it's completely destroyed. All 28 men get out of the ship and they are on a slab of floating ice. And they will be there together for the next year. They need to survive on a flat, a floating slab of ice for an entire year. Now, if you wonder how you could possibly do that in a place that you can't grow any fruit, food, how could you survive? The way you do that is you um, kill seals. That's the only source of food for you. So you can kill a seal and you can use the seal blubber to cook it and then you can eat the seal meat and that's all you get for a year. Now, uh, they were able to get on the ship and get some of the stores, some of the tools off of there. And one of the things they got was powdered milk. They were able to retrieve this massive case of powdered milk. And so that was their treat. Every single day, once a day, they would gather around the stove that was heated by seal blubber and they would melt some ice and they would mix in the powdered milk. And that would be one piping hot cup of milk that every single person got one time a day. Now, I don't know if you've ever been stranded, half-starved in sub-freezing temperatures on an island of ice with the same people for an entire year. But if you have, you can appreciate that that cup of milk was a very big deal for these men to be able to experience. Well, you got this wild scene where um, they serve up the hot milk and an argument ensues. Tempers are short. People argue with each other. There's some pushing and shoving. Somebody bumps somebody who bumps somebody, and he drops his cup of hot milk and it falls on the slab of ice, and it seeps in, and it's gone forever. And you have this survival-hardened man bow his head and literally cry over spilt milk. (laughs) He just, he can't help himself. He just begins to sob over his milk. What happens next? It's so small, but it is such a delightful picture of a community that rallies together All 27 men who witness this, they stop their arguing and they come one after another and every one of them pours a sip of his hot milk into the guy's empty tin until he has a full cup of hot milk to enjoy. It's just beautiful to see that in action. You watch a community that stops what they're doing and at their own expense, they begin to serve one another and you think to yourself, I want to be a part of something like that. That's the kind of thing I want to participate in. I want to serve and I want to be served in this kind of community. 
That's what's happening to David and his new band of people. They're going to be tested immediately to say, if you really are a people that are surrounding a king, if you're really going to be weighed by who you welcome and who you serve, what are you going to do at the very end of the chapter when, lo and behold, your first test arrives on your doorstep? He's Abiathar. He's the orphaned son of Ahimelech, and he desperately needs help. David, in some sense, understands this, and so he looks at Abiathar, and he says to him in verse 23, stay with me. Do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me, you shall be in safe keeping. That echoes in my mind what Jesus said to the disciples, if the world hates you, understand that it first hated me. Of course it will hate you, but have no fear. I have overcome the world. Abiathar, he comes into this brand new community that's surrounding this brand new king and he experiences what everyone who touches a believing community experiences that we are weighed by who we welcome and who we as a church serve even at great expense to ourselves. Let's pray together. Father, make us such a community. You are the prophet, you are the priest, and you are the king. You speak the word, you mediate on behalf of us, and you order us around this new life that serves one another. I pray that you would make us a community that enjoys those three offices that you fulfill and a community that turns around and reflects those three offices to each other and to a watching world. Would you do that in our midst? We ask in Jesus' name, amen.